Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. This is Kerry Hudson on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. She died really far too early, but she was a sort of pioneer of writing about working class life in a way that was celebrated and critically acclaimed. She is my first Shiro. It's all Shiro's, by the way, of course. <laughs> the way she engages thoughtfully and mindfully and politically with the creative industry that she exists within, I think, is truly inspiring. We used to, uh, sorry about this Globe Theatre, uh, we used to take little drinks from the bar and go to the toilets and sit in the toilets and have a drink and a gossip. They are people who have personally had a huge impact in my life, but who are also doing great good work out in the world. And that's why this podcast is so beautiful, actually. My guest today is the author Kerry Hudson. We first met when she published her debut novel, Tony Hogan Bought Me an Ice Cream Float Before He Stole My Ma. She read at Polari and was later shortlisted for the Polari First Book Prize. Since then, she's published a second novel, Thirst, and a best-selling memoir, Lowborn, about the reality of being poor in the UK today. Hello, Kerry, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I often begin this podcast by reminding my guests what the podcast is about, but I think you're pretty much up to speed on that. So let's just jump straight in. Who is the first person that you'd like to talk about with me today? And why have you chosen this particular person? Um, so the first person who I consider to be one of the sort of forerunners and pioneers of female working class writing, and that is Andrea Dunbar, playwright and scriptwriter, writer of uh, the Arbor and uh, Rita, Bob and Sue too. I always get that. <laughs> I always get that mixed up. I have to. I have to go very, very slow when I do that. I just think she is. Um, I mean, she she died really far too early. She left us too early, but she was a sort of pioneer of writing about working class life in a way that was celebrated and critically acclaimed, and also like with pride and a lack of sort of wanting to tidy up the edges or neaten it out, you know? So she's my first Shiro. It's all Shiro's, by the way, of course. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that she refused to iron out the wrinkles, soften the edges, make things more palatable. I think there's still pressure on people from marginalised backgrounds, whether it's to do with class or race or sexuality, gender identity, there's still pressure on people writing from those perspectives to soften the edges, to make things more palatable to a mainstream audience. I think there's still that pressure there. I think her tenacity, I've got a quote here um, from her religious education teacher who says, um, who says, 
Andrea is not God and she must come to terms with this. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of what she was. And I love this. And she came from a, a really um, complicated, often dysfunctional, often violent household. Uh, she wrote her first play in Green Biro when she was 15, drawing on all the things she saw on her kind of really rough estate in Bradfield, Bradford, uh, the Butterfield estate. And then she um, and then she amazingly got discovered by the royal court. Um, somebody, I think that there's a lot of sort of um, uh, dispute about how her play ended up at the royal court. But somebody thinks it was one of her social workers or her case workers, because at that time she was 18 and she was living in a uh, home for women facing domestic violence with her kids. And when she went down to London, that was the first time she'd been to London, the first time she'd even been in a theatre, and she was down there to see her plays rehearsed at the Royal Court. Um, and it really gives you just a sense of like how tenacious she was and also the sort of inner confidence she must have had because she mainly stayed on her estate even after she kind of reached great acclaim with the Arbour um, and went through lots of sort of very, very difficult personal stuff. And she kept on writing because I think she really believed in what she was doing. Um, there was no um, sort of coming cap in hand to the middle class elites and saying, can I write about this? She spent a lot of time saying, like, this is the truth. This is my truth. And I really want to write about it. And I find that hugely inspiring. When was this, Kerry? What year are we talking about? So she was the youngest person ever to have a play produced at the Royal Court. And it was the reason, another reason that she's kind of, she feels close to me is because uh, it was produced in 1980, which is the year of my birth. So, um, so I mean, she really, you know, she really, for me, like started the well-trodden path of women being able to write about their experiences and um, being proud about being able to do that. She uh, died of a brain hemorrhage a few months before her 30th birthday in her local pub. By that point, she was pretty deep into alcoholism, unfortunately. And I often think about, so one of the reasons why she never really managed to make the most of the enormous success and sort of critical acclaim she had was because she was being paid peanuts, pretty much. So for the Arbor, she really didn't get paid very much. And that meant she was never really able to financially make herself a, a better foundation for her art and for her family, as well as the many other problems that came from the way she'd grown up. There's a story, if I remember correctly, where the director of the Arbor said that Andrea said that he had to send her payments to the post office, or maybe it was the travel money to get to London, because otherwise her dad would have it before she could get to it. And so that gives you a sense of like the financial precarity that she was in. I feel like she was done very badly by the people around her back then. I also wonder if she'd been growing up in an estate in Bradford now, even with that prodigious talent and that sort of sense of self-belief, uh, whether she would have actually been able to write that those plays now and get onto the Royal Court. And I think that's interesting. Like if we're looking at social mobility, I doubt she would have been able to do it or it would have been very hard for her to do it. Um, and so that's a, a real failing, I think, of the, the literary sort of community generally, if we're going backwards and not forwards. But she was, I think she was a prodigious talent who was basically let down by people around her who should have been helping her to really make the most and um, really have a, the most of her success and really have a long career. But essentially, I think a lot of people, nobody really knew what to do with her, you know. She was 
some people sort of viewed her voyeuristically some th- thought she was sort of a, a novel sort of a novel idea you know there was like a lot of tokenism I think around her and um, she was quite fascinating critics called her um a genius straight from the slums with black teeth and a brilliant smile and that I think kind of sums up so even though I mean her talent is just absolutely undeniable but the way she was received was quite problematic and um I think it's it's tragic to be honest and I also think it's tragic that she she still doesn't have a memorial in her name in Bradford for instance and that of course should happen because she was really one of the the founding figures of literature and working class literature but especially in sort of that part of the world so it seems astonishing to me that she could have produced such work and not be more widely recognized and celebrated there is a campaign um so i i wrote about her earlier in the year um for the royal society of literature of uh, which i am bewilderingly now a fellow and um, so you know sometimes the working class uh, writer does have to get in with the institution but they asked me to nominate someone who i think should be uh, should have been recognized in their time as a fellow of the royal society of literature and i chose andrea dunbar and when i did that um somebody contacted me and said there's a campaign you know we're trying to um we're trying to commemorate her um because to me it seems and also i mean i feel like her work should just be drawn on all of the time. You know, it's complicated work and it's of its time, but it's really, really rich and funny and human. And it doesn't make any sense to me that it's not uh, more widely read, more widely studied, certainly more widely performed. I think I'm just going to have to become like a sort of (laughs) one woman Andrea Dunbar TED talk. (laughs) When did you first become aware of her work? So in my teens, in my teens, um, watching Rita, Sue and Bob too. So in my teens, sitting in uh, our council estate flat uh, in Great Yarmouth, where you could hear the Pleasure Beach roller coaster <laughs> from it if you opened up the window. Um, uh, I watched uh, Rita, uh, Sue and Bob too with my mum. And Rita, Sue and Bob too really hard to say, <laughs> try saying that after a few drinks, is about um, sort of this complicated relationship between an older man and his uh, his two babysitters. Now, I think we definitely call it grooming. But at the time, it was for me, when I was watching it, it was the mid 90s. And um, I knew men like him. And, you know, like that dynamic of like much, much, much younger sort of mid-teen women and, um, and older men was really common really really common um you know uh clearly predatory retrospectively but at that time it wasn't and it was one of those times where I saw my own life reflected in in culture and I saw the humor and the hurt and uh the laughter and the compassion and the energy of where I'd grown up I felt seen and I felt understood and most of all I think I felt that if other people, because I was just starting to awaken to the idea that I'd like to do something creative. So I love books. I was getting into drama. I was able to go down to London and visit my dad who lived there and go to art galleries. So I was starting to get the idea that there was this like whole other world out there. But that was the first time that I saw that there might be something of value that I could offer, you know, that there was, that I had this, I had something that other people might actually respond to, which was this like rich, and uh, interesting, <laughs> interesting life that often just isn't often uh, explored in uh, art or literature. And even back then wasn't, you know, even though, you know, that's kind of like the, uh, 
boys from the black stuff era you know so that was the first time I came across her and she just really 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 stuck with me and then there's a beautiful uh sort of documentary slash film it's a hybrid really so it's um called The Arbor which uh, explores her life so as an actress depicting Andrea Dunbar and then they actually went back to uh, her estate and had actors act out scenes from her play The Arbor so it's very meta but I can't if you haven't seen it I cannot recommend it enough it's I left with my heart like swelling up in my throat <laughs> because I was so inspired and I was like well this is this is how you do art and this is also how you take it back to your communities and this is how you um, really start to understand how working class creativity comes about, how it's received and then also why it's so often cut short, why those careers are so often cut short. It's very interesting what you say there about being seen and fitting in because I think these are two issues that really affect you as you're growing up. If you are other for whatever reason, whether it's to do with your sexuality or your economic background, and you don't see yourself seen in the world in which you would like to operate, whether it's the arts or whether it's banking or whatever it might be, it's very difficult to make that leap of faith. And also you don't have the positive reinforcement that people rely on in order to build confidence. So you end up feeling like an outsider. Many working class people that I know in the arts have imposter syndrome. It's a very common phenomenon. You talk to lots of writers and they say they have imposter syndrome. They tend not to be straight white middle class men. They tend to be people from other backgrounds. And it's not surprising to me that people who have grown up perhaps feeling not seen, not supported, not positively reinforced, would end up feeling still insecure in their professions however good they are however successful they are and still have that self-doubt in a sense those feelings of otherness that you grew up with it sticks with you it does it does and I think you know what I always say is and one of the reasons why um I've always been not just because I, <laughs> I'm a big mouth and I like to be annoying but <laughs> the one of the reasons why I've always <laughs> been um so um so vocal about the fact that I am a working class woman who grew up in B&Bs and council estates who left school at 15 is because if you can see it then you can be it and I really believe that you know I really believe that we have to see examples of artists from marginalized backgrounds doing that work and then also we have to see their art so that we have some sort of context to explore our own experiences if we want to, you know, like for me, it's a pleasure for me to explore my upbringing and the communities I came from and the consequences of the working class experience and trauma and hope and resilience. Uh, but I think it is just really important that there are visible working class actors and writers and directors and musicians out in the world so that people coming up can see that it is a possible and viable thing for you. I grew up in a small terraced house in a small town in South Wales, very working class family. My stepdad was a builder and a plumber and my mum worked part time as a nurse. And my parents encouraged me, especially my mum encouraged me to further my education and go to university. She was very keen that I would be the first person in the family to, to go to university, etc. But because I had very arty aspirations from quite a young age, 
and I went to a university to study English and drama, there was always this anxiety that my education wouldn't lead to financial security. So my mum would often say to me, you can always teach, you can always teach, because the idea of actually being a working class kid and growing up and being in the arts, becoming a writer, becoming a journalist, working in the media, that just didn't seem like a possibility to my parents. I think because the arts are so insecure, and if you've grown up in a household where there wasn't a lot of extra cash sloshing around, then that feeling of insecurity never really leaves you. And I think in some ways, Andrea's story is an illustration of that, that even though she had success, she was never able to feel completely secure in this world that she was now operating in. No, and I think, I mean, partly that was, I think, because she was honestly just robbed a bit. I think, she, you know, people take it, took advantage of her sort of naivety, you know. It's really hard to explain to people that when you've never had more than £500 ever as a whole family, you know, like the idea of like, to to try and help people understand why she wouldn't have fought for a, a better sort of deal for herself <laughs> you know it's hard to, like your your idea of, of how much you're being paid for something is very subjective to how much you've ever had I think and so I think she was just generally underpaid because you know she was so grateful for anything you know she was literally living in a in a domestic violence shelter when the, when she was sent down to London for the rehearsals um, you know, and she already had a, a kid there or maybe even two kids, I think, by that point. Um, so, you know, she didn't have had she had, I think, a different sort of background, she might have been able to also uh, make more creative decisions that were her own, uh, take more time to to write things that she wanted to write, explore her creative practice. But those are those are luxuries she was never afforded. And that's so true, I think, of a lot of working class writers now. Um, I do think. I do think luckily, because of Andrea, there is sort of more and more of a tradition of working class writers, which means we all kind of help each other out, you know. Um, so uh, there's schemes and grants and funds and it's a finite pot, you know. But the point is that I feel like there's a there's a community of working class artists now who we can look to and gain advice from and who support each other. Um, and that really makes a very big difference, I think, now. Um, but I still think that if we're talking about getting that really, like, amazing superstar talent from, uh, you know, uh, a 15-year-old on an estate, you know, in Bradford, would we, would she have the opportunity now to explore what she did in school? Because that's what happened. She was just really, she failed every every single uh, class except for English that she got an A in. And she was really like nurtured by her teacher. Uh, would she have been nurtured by her teacher? Would her teacher have been able to nurture in that way? Um, would the Royal Court have taken a, quite an audacious chance <laughs> on an 18 year old who'd never been inside a theater? And then how would it have been received? You know, how how would the, the media have, portrayed her so I think I think there's something really interesting to explore and maybe one day I will if we had a modern day Andrea Dunbar uh, in exactly the same circumstances what would happen to her now I would hope that she'd have a better experience but sad to say I'm not convinced that she would I think in some ways social mobility has become even more of a struggle now than it was when I started out I think it's much harder now for people from poorer backgrounds to gravitate 
towards jobs in the arts and publishing than it was back in the 90s, for example. As a published author, my first few editors were all people from similar backgrounds to mine who'd gone to university and then gone into publishing. And those people are much harder to find now. Publishing is a much more middle-class profession than it was then. So I'm not convinced that she would have an easier time now than she would have had back then. Sad but true. Who is the next person that you'd like to talk about today? And again, Kerry, why have you chosen this person? So the next person is our very own Bernadine Everisto. Bernadine! She's a, an MBE and an OBE, as I'm sure you know. If you're looking for a role model, if you're looking for someone who you want to be when you grow up, I mean, I don't want to age Bernie because she's, I think, only a few years older than I am. But when I do eventually grow up, um, then Bernadine is is the writer and the woman that I would aspire to be like. I mean, I just find her to be uh, not only a huge talent, a literary powerhouse, but um, has been for many decades now, all through her career, just an absolute champion of trying to have more inclusivity in literature, of championing writers on the margins, often very quietly without any thanks or show when she first was in touch with me to see if she could help me. And, um, but she hadn't met me, you know, and that's, you know, really just because she sees that she wants to make a difference in the industry. And I also think that what is particularly impressive is that even after the Booker Prize, when I feel like her life must have just exploded. I can't even imagine what it's like. Um, she used all of that platform that she had for every single time she had an opportunity, she used it to readdress something or highlight an emerging writer or to make some sort of very important point politically about our culture. I just think she's a she's a powerhouse and a class act. <laughs> and um and I feel like she's um she's almost so so modest and unshowy about everything that she does that I feel like often people don't realize how much she's been doing behind the scenes even though I mean her work is so prodigious I thought you know just have a little look <laughs> and see see what else she's been up to uh since she won the booker I saw that she's been nominated for 69 prizes and awards she sat on 40 award juries uh, during her career that is really astounding to me because every time she sits on an award jury she's bringing a different perspective that might not be on that jury which means that again she is supporting other writers who might not get that recognition at that table where people want to see their own lives reflected. Bernie has been a big supporter of my work and of Polari for a very long time I think she and I first met in the noughties and in 2010 2011 she read at Polari for the first time she refers to one of my early novels in her book Mr Loverman as part of the main character's coming out process he reads a novel of mine called The Gay Divorcee to see that name checked was a huge buzz for me at the time and then later on she very kindly agreed to be a judge for the Polari Prize so she's always been a very very big and vocal supporter of LGBTQ plus writing and writers what an astounding woman she's had her books translated into 60 different languages it's really just astounding i think she's just a true inspiration you know when you asked me to talk about this of course your mind just like immediately explodes but i was thinking about who helped me get to where i i am as a writer 
from the background that I came from and with the work that I write about and then where I would like to go as a writer and so Bernadine is like sort of the next logical step for me and that's not to say if I want to win a booker or I think I will I mean I'll take the booker right like if it's going I'll have it but what I actually mean is like the way she engages thoughtfully and mindfully and politically with the creative industry that she exists within I think is truly inspiring. She's now the president of the Royal Society of Literature and she uh as far as I understand it, pioneered the RSL Open Scheme, which is to get writers, um, much like someone like Andrea Dunbar in her time, who would be overlooked by by the traditional selection process. So the Royal Society Fellows are nominated by other fellows, and then it goes to um, a vote within the society. And um, she pioneered a system whereby people could nominate writers from other backgrounds that might traditionally have been overlooked. So again, like absolutely using her seat at the table to bang her spoon really lightly have a look at who's at that table and say well who else could we have here and why is that important like just having that sort of radical interaction with the industry that you're in I think is to me as aspirational as winning a booker um, if not even more so you know but you can't deny that when she won the booker she immediately mobilized all of the capital she had to try and um help as many other writers um, as she possibly could with the, the sort of new platform that she had. One of the many things that I really admire about Bernie is that she took a long time to become a sort of overnight success and get all this acclaim that she's finally receiving. And many people having waited that long to be recognised would have become quite embittered and frustrated or have a sense of entitlement about it. And the great thing about Bernie, or one of the great things about Bernie, is that she's been so modest about it, and yet she's also been very, very strong, and she's used her position to do more of the same work that she's been doing for a long time, but to do it on a bigger platform, with a bigger reach and a greater impact. And I just think that's so admirable. Amazing, right? Like, take all that energy that she derived, I think, from from helping uh, to change the industry and then she changed the industry and then she had a new platform and she used all of that energy to change the industry some more. The first time I met her was when we did a, a British Council conference in Berlin together. She was curating it and chairing it. Um, but one of her students was there as well. And so even though she was curating a three day, uh, a three day conference and doing lots of cheering and, you know, was just basically, as you know, with those things like sort of up in the morning, uh, straight into the seminars right through to the evening doing the sort of dinners and the talking and stuff she said that she was going to take her student away for a lunch so that she could have a little chat and see how she was doing and that is that's Bernadine you know like she will always she'll always find a way to do a little bit extra for someone else you know she's she's a pure soul we don't deserve her I interviewed Bernie for this podcast recently and I have to say she is so humble and she carries her many achievements so lightly I think she may even be slightly embarrassed that we're talking about her in this way now, Carrie. <laughs> She's going to be so mortified. I, <laughs> I did think when I was when I when I was writing up my notes, I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> She's going to like this, <laughs> but she deserves it. Bernie, if you're listening, I can only apologise on behalf of myself, on behalf of Kerry. We're very, very sorry for praising you to the heavens on this podcast, and we hope that you will find it in your heart to forgive us for this indiscretion. Kerry, who is the next person you'd like to talk about with me today? 
So the third one is actually not someone famous. It is uh, it is my best friend. Um, I'm not going to say her first name because she works as a head teacher of a nursery school in Peckham with a lot of challenges, um, which comes with just being in an area that is often socioeconomically deprived. And she has just done, obviously, like everyone else, two years of pandemic. Um, she also has two beautiful kids, an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old. And she absolutely goes above and beyond every single day to make the school better for those kids. So whether it's like finding a way to celebrate Pride or Black History Month, she is always looking for ways to make sure that her children see themselves reflected in the society that they're growing up in, that it's a tolerant school. She campaigned for drag queen uh, storytelling within the school as well. And then she goes home and she's an amazing mother. So I'm a mum now. Um, and she has been like my sort of, my my template for how to be a great mum, you know? She's warm and funny and loving. And even when she's exhausted, she shows up. But I think it's not just that I find her to be this, obviously she's my best friend. <laughs> There's a reason for that. This like, this like a uh, beautifully inspiring person. But I think she is also indicative of all the other heroes that are working quietly without the benefit of social media or someone to shout them out on a podcast. All the sort of amazing frontline teachers and doctors and nurses and cleaners who are constantly doing the hard work and getting almost none of the recognition for that, really, I think, you know. And so I wanted to honour her um, because I think she is a true hero and she's a hero every day, every day, whatever's going on with her, she gets in and she gives her full self to those children and makes their life and their parents' life better, you know. I mean, that's the other thing that often for schools um, like hers, there's a lot of work working with the families as well as the children. So it's not just about what you do in the classroom, it's really about engaging with the families and what they need and how you can help them. Uh, one thing she did recently was uh, she was worried about the cost of living crisis for her parents. And so she put up a note on the on the notice board that just said, we just want to let you know that because of the cost of living crisis, we know everyone will be struggling with money. So we really don't want any end of term presents. Uh, please just get your child to draw us a picture and that will make us so happy. Um, and we're very glad. And that is, it's that sort of, that small act of thoughtfulness that will make a difference to a parent who is really, really um, anxious and stressed out and who just doesn't have enough money to go and buy chocolates and flowers for the teacher. Um, and she shows up in her job like that 10 times every day in 10 different scenarios, um, as do so many other frontline workers working in a really economically and politically hostile environment for so many, really just bridging the gaps where the government are failing to provide that safety net where they should. How long have you known her, Carrie? How long have you two been friends for? Uh, so we've been friends since I was 21. So quite a long time, Paul. <laughs> uh, growing old is, is very much a privilege as far as I'm concerned. So we've known each other for 22 years. We met when we both got a bar job at the Globe Theatre. We sold nuts and bottles of beer out of the little shacks out the front of the, the Globe Theatre. <laughs> it was like an instant love affair. I actually, I'd just fallen in love with my ex-long-term partner. 
Uh, and then I met my best friend like within a month of that. And so I had these two huge love affairs um, sort of come at the exact same time. We used to, uh, sorry about this Globe Theatre, uh, we used to take little drinks from the bar and go to the toilets and sit in the toilets and have a drink and a gossip. We lived together for a long time above a betting shop and she'd always let me wear her shoes because she wore flats, but my feet were hurting. We saw each other through through two decades of like our sort of our messy 20s and then our very first job on her first day of teacher training. I took her to a workingman's club, uh, workingman's cafe. I wish it was a workingman's club in Islington and uh, brought her a fried breakfast and then gave her a little packed lunch for her first day of teacher training. You know, and she made me dinner after my very first day at my proper office job. She's just been, especially for me, who I'm estranged from most of my family. So you really have to choose your family in that case when you have a more complicated family. And she has been... She has been my family for, for two decades now. I'm godparents to her children. She is godparent to, to my son. And how lovely to have people around you who inspire you to wake up and try and do a bit better every single day, you know, who who remind you that actually there's real purpose in waking up and trying to do good things and be thoughtful and find those little things that you can do to make other people's lives better too and that is the embodiment of what she does every single day i always ask my guests this question which is are there any qualities which you feel that these various heroes heroines all share when i think about a hero i think about someone who you look to to hope that you can progress as a person and with all of them i see examples of ways that i as a person and a writer would like to be better and get better and keep moving forward and I'm just glad they exist you know for all different reasons I think they are people who have personally had a huge impact in my life but who are also doing great good work out in the world and that's why this podcast is so beautiful actually the world is a bin fire <laughs> and we're just toasting our marshmallows on the bin fire of Britain you know so I think it's really important to have hope and when I look at all three of these women, even Andrea Dunbar's story or Bernadine's, as you said, like very long overnight success, but then what she did with that platform or my lovely best friend who gets up every day and goes and makes so many children's lives so much better. They're who I look to to hope. When things are really, really tough, they're the, the sort of figures that I looked at. And I'm like, OK, let's get up, do another day. What can we do today? And that's really what a sort of a, a hero is to me, I guess. My thanks to Carrie for being such a great guest. And to find out more about her and her work, please visit her website, which is kerryhudson.co.uk. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is Travis Alabanza on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Like the book's dedicated to her. I've dedicated all my work to her. I just think that she's she's a hero. I think that I have a particular like pride in retrospect about her just now understanding the way the world works and thinking like wow to be an immigrant in this country raising two kids on your own unexpectedly and to do it with such kindness is something that I really now realize I shouldn't have taken for granted. David Hoyle knows he's a hero of mine but I feel like I've never publicly like used that word for him. I got given a copy of Giovanni's Room when I was 15 by someone who I now realise was definitely being like an older gay. But at the time, I didn't quite realise. I thought he was just someone that worked at the library. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time.
Thanks for listening.